showtime. Good afternoon. It's Brent Holland here for Night Fright. Have we got a special guest for you guys this afternoon. The JFK conspiracy is the biggest conspiracy in history. The consequences of President Kennedy's assassination resound today. But what about the first line of defense for the young president? The Secret Service. Abraham Bolden was the first African-American handpicked by President John F. Kennedy himself. For some reason, most of us still turn to the world of sports for their heroes. Courage comes in many guises. As for myself, I've always gravitated towards and been inspired by men of integrity and men of honor. This afternoon on Night Fright, the story of a true American hero. This afternoon, it's the President John Kennedy assassination. Oh, and by the way, all the rumors you have ever heard about the assassination are true. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. Now your host, Brent Holland. I am pleased to welcome to Night Fright for the very first time, live on the phone, a true American hero, all the way from Chicago, Abraham Bolden. Mr. Bolden, sir, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Brandon. Thank you for inviting me on your show this afternoon. Believe me, sir, when I say it is my true pleasure. We are so blessed to have you on this show. A true Thank American hero. Thank you very much. I've done a bunch of these shows, sir, and usually I get nervous before every show, but not like this one. I've got butterflies in my stomach. I'm so impressed with you, sir, and what you have accomplished in your life and what you've stood for through adversity. I wonder if you could give us a little bit of a background about yourself, sir, and all the accomplishments that you've accomplished over the years? Yes, I was uh, born in East St. Louis, Illinois in uh, 1935. East St. Louis is a little small town adjacent to uh, to uh, St. Louis, Missouri. I was reared there and uh, went to school uh, in East St. Louis, graduated from uh, Lincoln High School, and uh, from there I went into Lincoln University in Jefferson City, Missouri, where I earned a B.A. degree in music composition. Uh, but I always had a, a, a feel for the law. I wanted to be in law enforcement, and uh, when it became impossible for me to pursue a musical career, I turned to law enforcement. I uh, went and applied for a job at the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. At that particular time, Pinkerton was not hiring uh, a Negro agents. We were called Negroes back during then, and that was in the late 50s. And uh, uh, But anyway, there was an advertisement in the newspaper, and my wife uh, cut it out and told me to go over and make an application. And I, my wife was Barbara, a very dedicated person, 
And I uh, told her they're not going to hire any Negroes. Uh, Pinkerton doesn't have any Negro uh, private detectives. And she said, well, go over there and apply anyway. So I put on my best suit I bought from Sears and Roebuck. And uh, I went over and I uh, went walked in to 705 uh, South Wallace Street in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, told them I was there, the young secretary there. And I have this in my book that I go from Dealey Plaza that I had come there to apply for uh, for the job. And she told me that they didn't have a job open. And I took the uh, clipping out of my uh, pocket and told her, yes, you do. I say, it's here in the newspaper. And uh, she says, well, we're not hiring people like you. Well, fortunately for me, uh, Mr. Mertz, who was the general uh, manager of the office there at Pinkerton, he heard the conversation through the door that was open into his office, and he came out and he ordered the secretary uh, to give me an application. And I filled out the application and was hired as the first African-American Pinkerton National Detective Agency uh uh, in uh, in the world, as a matter of fact, I became the first African American Pinkerton National Detective, and from there I went into the Illinois State Police. I was trained as a state policeman and went and was stationed in uh, Peoria, Illinois, for about four years. And from there, I went into the United States Secret Service. Indeed, folks, we are speaking with Abraham Bolden, the first African-American handpicked by JFK himself to be on JFK's Secret Service team. You are listening to CKLU 96.7 FM, www.cklu.ca. Mr. Bolden has a book out about his amazing story called The Echo from Daily Plaza, and I ordered it, folks, from Chapters right here on the Kingsway. You can also go to Mr. Bolden's website and order it from there. The website is www. Echo from dailyplaza.net. And I should tell you, daily is spelled D-E-A-L-E-Y. I've read the book three times now, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's amazing. And I think it should be made into a movie, and Will Smith presented as yourself, sir. Yes, we're we're hoping uh, that it will be made into a movie. We've had a couple of offers so far, but uh, it's a little early in the game to uh, go into other media at this time. What we're trying to do is get a good start with the book and get that in circulation the way that we want it. And from there, we'll go into other media types. Folks, if you want to read a fantastic book about a real American hero, and I say that with all true conviction, this is the book for you. The Echo from Daily Plaza by Abraham Bolden. It is full of little antidotes about JFK, Mr. Bolden's conversations. You're going to get a behind-the-scenes look at the Secret Service and what they didn't do to protect the president. And subsequently, Mr. Bolden's frame and conviction, wrongly so, and just a travesty of the justice system that was enabled to silence him in his protest against the Secret Service and the assassination. Sir, I was wondering if you could tell us how you actually met JFK. Yes, it's uh, very ironic how I I met him. It it was almost an act of fate and providence, because uh, when I joined the Secret Service, I was, uh, as I say, a state policeman in uh, Peoria, Illinois. Uh, I had been for about four years. But the president, uh, when he was running for office, he came to Peoria when I was a state policeman, and I was stationed at the Peoria airport where his airplane landed and where the motorcade began the process of carrying him into Peoria. And I got a glimpse of him then. 
And uh, I took a liking to President Kennedy. He reminded me uh, uh, so much of uh, that smile, and, and he just was so cordial-looking and so charismatic, and I just took a liking to him. And uh, in the process of protecting him in Peoria, I was working with uh, Fred Backstrom, who was a uh, special agent in charge of the Springfield, Illinois office. And I asked uh, Mr. Backstrom, I said, uh, do they have any Negro Secret Service agents? And uh, he told me, well, I'm not sure. There may be one, a Puerto Rican in uh, in New York, but I'm, I'm really not sure. So why don't you apply? So I applied for the Secret Service and entered the Secret Service in October 1960. So now uh, the president, you know, he became the president of the United States, and uh, he was elected that uh, November I was stationed in Chicago. So now here comes the president. He's coming to Chicago in order to thank Mayor Daley here in Chicago for the support that uh, Mayor Daley and, and his uh, group gave him mm -hmm. in his run for the president. Now, um, he only took Illinois by about 8,000 votes, and so it was a very close race here in Illinois. And uh, in the process, uh, at the Secret Service office, they were handing out assignments uh, uh, for the uh, event at McCormick Place where Kennedy was supposed to speak. And so as a result, uh, they gave me an assignment, which was uh, stationed by in front of the washroom on the lower level of, of uh, the McCormick Place. Mm -hmm. And now uh, that, that was an out-of-the-way place, you, you might say. It was uh, not the best assignment that a person could have if you wanted to get a glimpse of the president. But anyway, I accepted the assignment being a new agent, and normally they uh, would have a Chicago policeman standing there. Usually they would use a uniformed policeman after the washroom would be secured, then they would mm -hmm. station a uniformed policeman there. But somebody uh, appointed me to be there. I guess they wanted me out of the way. But to make a long story short, about 8.30 on the April the 28th of uh, 1961, I heard the motorcade as it pulled up, and I saw the cameras flashing and everything, and the reporters were running back and forth, and the crowd became very excited. And I looked up at the top of the stairs from the, the point where I was standing in the washroom, and lo and behold, here comes President Kennedy walk, oh, walking my. down the steps. Would have the first thing that he had to do when he arrived at McCormick Place is use the washroom. <laughs> and so there he, I stand. So he was I, human like everyone else. <laughs> I never would have met the president had they not stationed me in front of the washroom. So I'm standing there with the washroom secured, and he's walking towards me. So uh, I moved to the side in order to let him pass, but he stopped right in front of me. And he had a, a wonderful smile on his face, and he looked at me, mm -hmm. and he says, uh, are you a Secret Service agent or are you one of Mayor Daly's finest? I say, I'm a Secret Service agent, Mr. President. And uh, he, during the conversation, the uh, president says, uh, Mr. Bolin, once that he found out what my name was, he said, Mr. Bolin, he said, has there ever been a... Secret Service agent assigned to the White House detail in Washington, D.C. And I told him, not to my knowledge, Mr. President. And he said, would you like to be the first? I said, yes, sir, Mr. President. You should have seen that smile on my face I and bet. on his face. <laughs> and uh, he said, I'll be looking forward to seeing you in Washington, D.C. 
and I just thought that was terrific. And we shook hands, mm. and he went into the washroom. And that uh, June, I, I was in Washington, D.C. Fantastic. Folks, indeed, we are speaking this afternoon with a real American hero, Abraham Bolden. And he's relaying a story to us right now about how he first met JFK and was assigned to a Secret Service detail. You can get Mr. Bolden's book, The Echo, from Daily Plaza, just over at Chapters on the Kingsway or any chapters around the country, if you're listening, or right on Mr. Bolden's website, which is www.echofromdailyplaza.net. And Daily, of course, is spelled D-E-A. L-E-Y. And that is where President Kennedy was assassinated. Sir, when you first met President Kennedy, was there anything about him that kind of surprised you? Was he bigger than you thought, smaller than you thought? Yes, he was He was taller than, than I thought, and his hair was uh, a little uh, redder than I thought it, it oh. would be. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think he was uh, at least a couple of inches taller than me. Huh. Yes, and and but but he had this uh, this uh, uh, twinkle in his eye uh, <laughs> when he smiled. His his whole face, everything smiled when he smiled. You could you could tell it was so sincere. And uh, when when he was talking to me, uh, especially in, in Washington D.C., whenever that I would come across a president, he always had a good word to say to me. Ask me how how I was Mayor Daly and. And uh, how was I getting along there? He would ask me different questions, and uh, he introduced me to members of his cabinet, his secretary. And uh, while I was there in Washington, D.C., standing in front of the uh, president's door. Yes, sir. As the uh, uh, cabinet session broke up, that was one day in in June. And uh, the president saw me standing in front of his door, and he looked up and he said, Mr. Bolin, I see you made it here. (laughs) <laughs> and and I was I was really surprised. And he walked over. Now now he here's a scenario here. He is a man who is talking about uh, just discussing the Vietnam War. He's got all kind of civil rights problems mm-hmm. that are going on about the country and everything. He 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 has his health problems that he's dealing with. And he calls me Mr. Bolin and comes out, shakes my hand outside the office and says, "Come, I want you to meet uh, some of the uh, senators and things." And he introduced wow. me. Senator Goldwater, Senator Humphrey, and uh, took me on the inside and introduced me to Miss Evelyn Lincoln, his secretary. Mm-hmm. And this one takes the cake. When we got to Pierre Solinger, now the president really touched my heart when he said this. He said, uh, Pierre, come here. And Pierre came over, he had his long cigar in his mouth. And he <laughs> says, I want you to meet somebody. He said, uh, this is Mr. Abraham Bolden, and said that... Uh, He's the Jackie Robinson of the Secret Service. Oh I almost God. cried. I, I mean, that yes. was such a huge compliment, you know, and it let me know then what the president expected of me because we know as a historical fact what mm-hmm. uh, Jackie Robinson suffered when he became the first Major League Baseball player. You know, Jackie Robinson, I hail from Montreal originally, and yeah. Jackie Robinson was sent to Montreal originally to play mm-hmm. for the farm club. He was hailed as a hero. As a matter of fact, it was stated that he had said that Montreal was the only place where uh, 100,000 people would chase after a black man without wanting to lynch him, and they just wanted to rejoice for him. And yeah, it was true. isn't was, that something? Oh, just amazing. His legacy echoes right through to today, as does yours, sir. Yes, it does. We even have now uh, oh, oh, 
Obama, the honorable senator from uh, Illinois, here in the president-elect, he's being also compared in some uh, circles with uh, Jackie Robinson, who seems to be mm-hmm. the uh, icon of, uh, of uh, the desegregation process. It's funny, you know, during that whole election period, I couldn't help think of Dr. King, the struggles through the late 50s, the 60s, and still to today, as a matter of fact. If it wasn't for him, I don't think any of this would have been possible. I really don't. Well, yes. Well, there was a whole uh, list of people who uh, who really contributed to the uh, civil rights movement and the movement forward of the African-American here uh, in, in America. We, we had uh, uh, many uh, people who were not of color, Mm-hmm. who also contributed to uh, to the forward uh, movement of the African-American here in America. And uh, we saw that um, uh, Cheney, Swerner, Goodwin, these were people who gave their lives in order to create a better America and to bring people together. They were uh, uh, lynched when they went down uh, in right. Mississippi, and uh, they were down there for the purpose of uh, helping uh, so-called Negroes uh, to vote there, and we had such, such leaders like Whitney Young and Stokely Carmichael, mm-hmm, Andrew mm-hmm, Young, mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass going back uh, go. some days, That's and, right. and all of these people, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, Fannie mm-hmm. Lou Hammer, Rosa Parks, Harriet Tugman, Rosa all of Parks, these people, yes. Dr. Martin Luther King uh, stood on their shoulders, and now we have uh, the uh, Honorable Barack Obama standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before him. And if they had not been for the sacrifices of those African-Americans that had gone before, then today could not have happened. What was that like for you, sir, growing up in the 50s and the 60s? How was that whole milieu? Today, people grow up and they forget. Well, they just don't know what it was really like in those days, the segregation. You alluded to it a little bit before. Perhaps that's why you were placed in front of the washroom. Segregation, it's it's like this, uh, uh, Brent. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you are a victim of uh, segregation policies and uh, racism, and when you grow up in it as I did, it becomes the norm. It, it, it's not an unusual thing. As a matter of fact, you become happy in the condition that you are because you know of no other condition. Now, once that I uh, matured and began to try to break out of that uh the uh, condition that I had uh, been reared in, that's when you really realize that things were stacked against us. Mm-hmm. Now, that's when you run into certain things that, like the uh, uh, red line that used to be on buses that all the uh, uh, Negroes had to sit behind the red line. Uh, you run into the two drinking fountains mm-hmm. that I was I was reared up in. You run the, into the... Uh, different school systems, uh, one which had uh, just about everything that you could imagine to educate the students. In ours, we just barely had pencils and papers in order to get to, uh, to move along. Mm. Then that was the personal racism. Now, in the uh, district where I lived, in the neighborhood where I lived, we had both uh, poor whites and poor blacks. And so we played together, we fought together, and, and we did all sorts of things together. But we had our confrontations, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, But they were not uh, racist, more or less. They were like uh, boys who will be boys. We would fight and wrestle, and the next time we would go get ice cream cones together. You see what I'm saying? Yes, sir. So yes, sir. it really didn't dawn on me until as I became older, 
and uh, became in the in the job market, began to seek jobs and began to travel around. Then these different uh, uh, segregation policies they hit you head on, and and it's a terrible experience, a very terrible experience. It's hard to explain. Is there a moment in your memory that really stands out, one above the other, about the segregation and racism that was going on? Uh, yes, yes, there he is. Now, and unfortunately, unfortunately, that happened when I was uh, in the Secret Service. And that's the, mm -hmm. the particular one that really hit me very, very hard. Because I was with the President of the United States of America, John F. Kennedy. And John F. Kennedy was a person who was so sincere about uh, moving along uh, justice and equality under the law for all Americans. That, that, that was his ideal. And he exuded that. You could tell he was serious mm -hmm. about that. Now, here I am sitting uh, in with the uh, my shift of the United States Secret Service agents, and we were sitting in the hotel room where we were living, which was a little cottage that we had rented. And uh, my supervisor of the Secret Service, uh, Harvey Henderson. That's right, Henderson. Yeah, yeah he was uh, sitting there. He had consumed several beers, and, mm. and he kept looking at me and, uh, you, you know, and... So he looked at me, and finally he said, uh, Bolden. And I said, uh, yeah, Harvey. And he says, I want to tell you something, and don't you ever forget it. And he said that uh, you're a nigger, mm. you were born a nigger, you're going to die a nigger, and you'll never be anything else but a nigger. So act like one. Now, now. That really hurt me. That hurt me deep down inside because here I am, one of the major responsibilities that a person could have on any job in the United States of America, and that is to protect the president of the United States. And here I run into the most blatant statement that I had ever heard in my life. And it came from a person who was directly in charge of assigning people to protect the president mm. of the United States, which I thought was horrible for him to say that. Oh, it's outrageous. Yeah. I don't think we could find the words to express the outrage, the, oh, goes past insensitivity. As I say, I'm struggling to find a word for the atrocity that he subjected you to. That's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Now, that took place at a Hyannis port, if yes, I'm not mistaken. Yes, that was at Hyannis port at the, on the Kennedy compound. To counter that, because I always like to counter a negative with a positive, can you tell the story about how you met Carolyn Kennedy? Yes, Carolyn. <laughs> very, very nice. Uh, it's Jacqueline. such a beautiful little story. <laughs> yes, she was. Uh, uh, well, Jacqueline Kennedy was going mm -hmm. to for a little swim in the ocean. And uh, I saw her out of the corner of my eye. I was sitting there on one of the guard posts on the umbrella <laughs> and a table. And uh, when she came out out from between, looked like some trees, you know. And uh, she says, will you watch Caroline while I take a swim? I told her, I'll be glad to, uh, Ms. Kennedy. So uh, Caroline had a little sand uh, cup with her, and she was standing there. I believe her, she had on a little pink uh, sunsuit. Aww. And she was uh, digging in the sand there, and I was sitting at the table and watching her, and she kept looking at me. Carolyn kept looking at me. So finally she says, what's your name? And I told her, Abraham. I say, like Abraham Lincoln. 
And then she started digging in the sand again. And uh, finally she came and she climbed up on the chair across from me and she looked at me and said, do you have a daughter? I said, yes, I, I have a daughter. I have a little girl just like you. She said, can I play with her? I said, sure you can. I said, but she's in Chicago. She says, I can go to Chicago. I, I said to myself, I bet you can. You can buy Chicago if you really want to. You probably own half of it already, but anyway. Uh, so uh, when God... Jacqueline came back and picked up Caroline. They were walking uh, back to the uh, mansion, and uh, Caroline, I heard her ask uh, Jacqueline, Mommy, can we go to Chicago? <laughs> I don't know what Jacqueline re uh, uh, replied, but I, I tell you, it was really something, little Caroline. Isn't that such a beautiful, beautiful story, from one end of the spectrum to the other? Yes, it was wonderful. Folks, this afternoon we are speaking with a true American hero, Abraham Bolden, and he's relaying some of the stories, first-hand stories, live stories, of when he was on JFK's Secret Service team and the racism he experienced, but also some of the more beautiful moments he experienced with the Kennedy family. You could get his book, The Echo from Daily Plaza, one of two ways. You can get it right at his website, which is www.echofromdailyplaza.net, or as I did, I ordered it right from Chapters on the Kingsway. Chapters, Abraham, just to let you know, is, I guess, our Canadian equivalent of Barnes & Noble. That's where I got it from. Yes, I see. Sir, it is the bottom of the hour. Do you want to take a little break, or do you want to keep going? I'll leave it well, up to we you. Can, it's up to you, uh, Brent. I'm here. Okay, uh, I'm going to leave that up to you. Usually at the bottom and top of the hours, we do take a break. Yes, all right. If you want to take a break at any time, sir... All right, well, we can go into a break for a few minutes if you would like. Sure, we could do that. Okay. And I'll come back. Just going to play a little bit of music, and you can get a glass of water and just sit back and relax. Sure, folks, all right. I'll just tell people who we're speaking with. Folks, we are speaking with Abraham Bolden. Abraham Bolden was the first African-American handpicked by JFK himself to be on his Secret Service detail after the assassination. Mr. Bolden blew the whistle on Secret Service ineptness at Daly Plaza that day and was subsequently framed for a crime he did not commit and was incarcerated. Unjustly so, once we get into his trial, you're going to understand the travesty that went on here. He's got a book out called The Echo from Daily Plaza, which can be got from his website, www.echofromdailyplaza.net. Or, as I said before, you can get it at Chapters right here. Right now, I'm going to play a song for our troops. Whether you support the war or not, folks, there's only one reason why we can have a show like this in a beautiful, peaceful country like Canada, and that's because we have troops that put themselves in harm's way every day. This one is called CFB Kandahar. We'll be back in three and a half minutes. Thank you.
We are speaking with a true American hero, Abraham Bolden. Abraham Bolden was the first African-American handpicked by JFK himself to be on his Secret Service detail. Just to mention, Mr. Bolden, you're going to be appearing at JFK Lancer's conference coming up on November 21st to 23rd this month in Dallas. Yes, I will. I just want to give out that information for folks in case they want to go down there. And this website in particular I'm about to give you is an incredible resource for information about the Kennedy assassination, Martin Luther King assassination, and also the Bobby Kennedy assassination, the three big ones. They were instrumental, JFK Lancer in helping me put my guests together for this month, including Mr. Bolden. JFK Lancer is triple W, JFK, Lancer, L-A-N-C-E-R, dot com. And where Lancer comes from is, I guess, as you know, <laughs> Mr. Bolden, the Secret Service, gave that nickname to President Kennedy. That was yes, his code that was name. his code name, yes. And Mrs. Kennedy's, if I'm not mistaken, was Lace. Yes. So there you go. I guess the kids had them too, did they? Yes, they, yes, they did. But uh, you know one thing that uh, kind of uh, concerned me, uh, Holland, is that... Yes, that they weren't announced like uh, like uh, Obama's was announced the other day. I, I never uh, heard a public announcement of uh, the code names of the president's uh, family. Now, they were leaked out uh, many times, you know, by mm-hmm. the uh, press who would hear certain things, you know. But I don't think that those code names are necessarily a need-to-know uh, priority for, for the general public. I, I just thought that that was a bad idea to uh, uh, make a public announcement of those code names that applied to uh, Obama and his family. Oh, I didn't know they were given out. Yeah, that doesn't seem right, because it's for security reasons that they're given the code names, is it not? Yes, that, that's right. But it was announced by uh, the Secret Service that uh, these code names uh, hmm. were uh, applying to Obama. I believe he's renegade, and I believe his wife is uh, renaissance, and... His daughter is Rosebud, and there's a, they all start with R, and I forget what his other daughter is. But in this day of high technology and, and wire reception of conversations and things like that, you know, that's important uh, information for one who might want to do Barack Obama some harm. Mm, I agree and with you. And I would, I would think that in light of what had happened to our uh, beloved President John F. Kennedy, that rather than be giving out code names, that they would be trying to uh, uh, change code names periodically in order to uh, keep the public from really identifying the code name with the President of the United States. That seems to me a logical uh, step to take in the security of the President. I was very surprised, shocked, and amazed that uh, this information was given out by the Secret Service. You see that, sir, all these years later, and you still have it. I think you should be put back on a Secret Service detail, the Presidential Secret Service detail. Yeah, there are some other things that I see, too, that that, uh, concerns me. Please, let's discuss them. Well, I I noticed on uh, television, for instance, uh, when when the candidate Obama Mm -hmm. was shaking hands there uh, in in the crowd, during one of his events that uh, some agents had the lapel pins in, which identified them as agents, and other ones did not. And I just wonder what would happen in a case like that if uh, some attempt were made on the Honorable Barack Obama's life and, and there was a shooting started, would the agents shoot each other by being uh, lack of identifying one another? 
Now, it's been a long time since I've been on the protective detail, but there are just certain things that you just don't do. And one of them is divulge identification and make that public and make it a certainty. See, as long as that was being reported by someone else, it's a question about it. I mean, they could speculate whether or not Obama was to be called or renegade or what. But the thing about it once that it's announced and officially uh, put out there by the United States Secret Service, that's a bad idea. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, sir, you mentioned the lapel pin, and you have a story about your lapel pin also when you were on Secret Service duty with JFK in a crowd. Yes, that's right. That's right. I was getting off a plane in, in, uh, in Massachusetts. That's right. And uh, one of the uh, uh, state policemen there was standing there, and he was on duty protecting the president, too, behind the roped-off area. And as I walked by the state policeman, he grabbed my coat. And, I, well, when he grabbed my coat, I pointed to my pen in the, in the lapel, which would mm-hmm. identify me as a Secret Service agent. But he still refused to let me go and ask me for further identification. Well, I didn't have time to give him any further identification because the president was shaking hands and he was moving in the direction that was going away from me. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I had to stand near proximity. So I uh, had to uh, force my uh, sleeve out of the hands of the state policeman. And he didn't let it alone. He still wanted to come after me. And uh, one of the other agents ran over and uh, uh, told him to leave him alone, say he's a Secret Service agent. Well, it, it would seem to me that that state policeman would have realized that I was a Secret Service agent getting off the airplane uh, right just before the president arrived and just standing there waiting for the president to land. And it, it just seems to me as some, some form of a little harassment, but I didn't dwell on that. I just went on and did my job, protected the president, and forgot about the situation. Mm-hmm. Was was there ever any close calls that you feel um, the president's life was in jeopardy when you were protecting him? No, I can't think of a close call. No, no, I, I don't. I can't think of any close call. But I will tell you this. When we were going to the National Press Club in, uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, they gave me this automatic machine gun and, yes, uh, to to uh, protect the president with. And uh, I'd never shot the uh, automatic machine gun before, and I wasn't familiar with it at all. And and I said, what am I supposed to do with this? I, I don't know. I haven't qualified with this weapon. And they told me, fake it. Fake it. Oh. <laughs> And so here I am with a with a big, powerful weapon that <laughs> and I wouldn't know the first thing about shooting this thing at. But uh, it it really wasn't a laughing matter because at that particular time uh, um, uh, there were so many threats against the president. We had this civil rights thing going, and mm-hmm. uh, to 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 just have a person uh, sitting up there with an automatic weapon and not knowing how to use it is unforgivable in in the situation. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yes. Um, let's go back to that Secret Service training you received. Is there any? training that you can talk about that you received just to let folks know um what you went through yes the, the training uh then in 1961 uh what was very brief uh it, back then they just took us out on like almost like a football field and uh 
told us a few things about jumping on and off the running board of the car and the follow-up car and things like that. I understand it's much more in detail now, the training that the Secret Service agents go through. They go mm-hmm. to the, uh, I believe it's a James Rowley uh, uh, school, Secret Service school. I think it's located somewhere just outside Washington, D.C., now I understand that the training that they perceive is rather comprehensive so far as the technological and the movements are concerned. But you must understand, Brent, that the uh, technological things uh, is not what protects the president. Men do. That's right. And the attitudes of mm-hmm. men is the, in, in the final uh, stages is what really uh, decides whether or not the president is going to live or die. Let's and talk. if the men are not in in physical, moral, or mental shape to perform their duties, then uh, the protective service is going to break down. That's a good segue, sir, into my next question. Going back to Harvey Henderson as the leader of the team and the drinking and the carousing that went on in Hyannisport, I was wondering if you could tell the folks about that. But before you do... I'm just going to tell people we are speaking with Abraham Bolden. He was the first African-American handpicked by JFK himself to be on JFK's Secret Service team. After the assassination, and we'll be getting into this shortly, he was subsequently framed for a crime he did not commit to silence him. Why was he trying to be silenced? Because he blew the whistle on the Secret Service. And we'll get into all that in just a few seconds. He has a great book out, which I have read three times, and it's full of all these real-life stories, and he's a real-life hero. The Echo from Daily Plaza is the name of the book. It could be bought from www.echofromdailyplaza.net, or as I got it right here at Chapters on the Kingsway. Is it available on the Lancer website? Do you know? Mr. I believe I believe it is. I'm I'm sure that uh, Deborah Conway would make the book available, and she is the uh, owner of that website. That's right. So I'm going to give that website also because it is such a great resource for all this information, which is www.jfklancer.com. By the way, I'm going to give you one more net address, if you will. If you have any questions for Mr. Bolden, please do email me at nightfrightshow at gmail.com, nightfrightshow at gmail.com. And now back to Mr. Bolden. Sir, I was wondering if you could relate some more of those horrible stories from Harvey Henderson and the drinking and the carousing. Yes, well, in in the first place, when we uh, first went to uh, uh, Massachusetts from Washington, D.C., I noticed that immediately uh, when we boarded the place, press plane we went to uh from washington to uh to the uh airport in massachusetts by press plane the uh agents uh were given alcoholic drinks on the on the plane now my shift once that we alighted uh, off of the uh, press plane was the shift that was supposed to protect the president of the united states until four o'clock that afternoon mm-hmm. and surely some of the agents who were on the press plane was drinking that free liquor and uh, once we alighted from the plane, they, they were, it's no question about it, they were high. And there were mm. many of them that were sought in a stumbling mood. They, they were, uh, the press people were passing out drinks of scotch or whiskey or whatever that, that you wanted uh, along. And some of the agents, I saw one agent, uh, especially uh, Harvey Henderson, he had about four of those little glasses sitting in front of him. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that's quite a lot of liquor. So uh, we... Um, 
some of the agents certainly were not prepared to to protect the president of the United States once that we got into the car and reached the Kennedy compound. They were stumbling and uh, slurring their speech and saying things that were out of the out and there, such as uh, we were on the way to the Kennedy compound, and uh, this guy, uh, Bob Foster, uh, looked out of the window, Agent Foster looked out of the window, and he saw a, a African-American whack. And I guess he forgot that I was sitting there because he pointed to it and he said, there goes the nigger. Oh, my God. Oh, man. And, and then he grabbed his mouth. He forgot that I was there. And then again, you, you, you see, I'm, I'm thinking like this. He is a young lady who is dedicating her life in the protection of the United States of America. This is a great country, and uh, uh, she was right in, in trying to uh, make a contribution uh, for the uh, safety and welfare of all people in America. But to have a fellow agent or a fellow government employee to regard her in such a low esteem, I just thought mm-hmm. it was awful. And, and I, I decided then and there that the chief of the United States Secret Service had to... Uh, had to uh, be advised of the type of men who were surrounding the president of the United States. Now, now these men, no question about it, some of them were very, very diligent agents like Clint Hill, who was guarding uh, That's right. the first lady. Oh, what a diligent agent uh, Clint Hill was. Did you and, know Clint uh, Hill? Yeah, oh, yes. Oh, I, I didn't Clint know Hill that. Well. I, I should just tell folks, Clint Hill, if you've seen the Zapruder film, which is that famous film of the assassination, Clint Hill is the only agent that made any effort, really, to jump on the back of the limousine and pulled Mrs. Kennedy back into the limo and covered her. I'm sorry to interrupt you, sir. Yes, and he was a very diligent agent. We we talk quite often, Clint Hill and I, and I talk with him about, about some of the things that uh, that that I didn't like, and uh, mm-hmm. of course he was uh, uh, didn't make too many comments. He just listened, you know. But anyway, uh, these agents were were drinking uh, early in the morning. They would get up, and we would have to go over to Kennedy Compound. Someone would com- consume two and three beers before we went over to work. Mm. And not only that, we put a bottle of liquor in the little bag that we carry just in case that the president takes off on a moment's notice. We had to carry a shirt and a change of underwear and little mm-hmm. shaving supplies and like that in a little tote bag because we may not get a chance to go back to the hotel and pack. That's why the agents carry those little tote bags with mm-hmm. them wherever they go. And uh, so... Um, this was a source of, of confusion also. And then the assignments that they were giving me uh, while I was in Hyannisport, they would always put me on a follow-up boat. And that's the boat when uh, the president would go riding on the yacht. Uh, that's the follow-up boat would follow the yacht up and down Nantucket Sound. And uh, the follow-up boat goes rather rather fast because it has a big siren on it, and it would be blowing the people out of the way, the fishing boats or whoever would be in the way, telling them to clear, in the, clear the path for the yacht. And it was rather, um, it was a sickening assignment. Uh, it almost made me seasick hmm. because that boat, you know, it's a small boat, and it's going about 40 miles an hour, which is a pretty good speed. But uh, one day, uh, to the president uh, saw me about to go down and get in the follow-up boat. He was getting ready to go on the yacht again, and he called Harvey Henderson, my supervisor, over. 
Now, the president had noticed that uh, I was never assigned to the yacht. See, there's a rotation process. Two agents would be assigned to the yacht, and then there would be four agents that would go down into the uh, follow-up boat. Mm -hmm. And the Coast Coast Guard drove the follow-up boat. Well, the president called Harvey Henderson over, and they had a conversation. The president closed the cabin door, and Harvey Henderson walked over to me, and he says, uh, Bolden, he says, come on up. He says, uh, you're on the yacht today. And so I went and I got on the yacht. Wow. Yes. And now the, the, that was by the president. The president saw that. President Kennedy saw that I was being uh, discriminated against, and he wanted to correct that. And uh, what what a very uh, uh, astute man. He watched everything. And so now when I got on the yacht, uh, I was sitting back there in that nice big leather easy chair and the uh, cabin door swung open and in walks a sailor and his shoes are shining man you can see the sun in his, in his shoes <laughs> and he walks over to me he's carrying this tray and uh, <laughs> he, he walks over and he he puts it on a little stand that is near this uh, fishing chair i guess that's what it was a fishing chair and uh, he says the president wants you to have lunch <laughs> <laughs> I almost fell out of that chair, man. I I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And uh and so now when I uh I looked at the spoons and things, you know, real silver, man. This is not this <laughs> this stainless steel stuff I got at home. This was real silver. And the cup was real silver and and it was my favorite soup, clam chowder soup with a little crackers and everything and and a little glass mm. of a uh pop, you know, and, and I just felt really good. Now, uh to put that into context, now after that happened and Harvey was told to put me on that yacht, yes, that's when we went back to the rooming house and he told me, put me in my place, that I was a nigger and would always be a nigger. That's when he told me that. And so he was really uh, uh, teed off at what had occurred earlier that day. Can you tell the people the story about the bookmark and Harvey Henderson also? Oh, that that was... Uh, that was a terrible thing. I was uh, studying at the White House, and I it was my first day there about uh, June the 6th and 7th, and I was reading the manual and uh, studying the manual as to the uh, different uh, posts that are in the White House and what was expected of us in the Secret Service manual. Well, I put the manual uh, down in a place, and the next day I came back to read the manual. Someone had placed a memorandum uh, inside the man, the the manual, and this memorandum was saying that uh, was from one of the agents in uh, Miami, Florida. The president was going to Miami, Florida, and the memorandum was saying that don't bring Boland to uh, Florida because we can't find a place for him to stay. Says the uh, manager at uh, Woody's Motel said that he won't uh, uh, accommodate a Negro agent. And now here I'm I'm thinking we we have national guards on uh, mm-hmm. on territory in the south and we That's have right. uh, all sorts of people who are being guarded in order to go to school and here right up under his nose the secret service are propagating the very thing that the president is against the in, instead of confronting right. the situation mm-hmm. 
and going up against these people who were maintaining uh, inequality so far as the living in the hotels were concerned, uh, they uh, bowed down to this uh, segregation and made them no better than the people uh, who President Kennedy was fighting against, so to speak. So now, uh, so I looked at the back of this particular memo, and somebody had drawn a caricature of a, of a black man with huge lips and big eyes and, mm. and had shaded in his face and had little beady hair and things like that and, and as a smack against uh, 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 me, I guess. And they had this particular uh, caricature with tears rolling down his cheeks. Well, uh, I understood what they were saying, and I was probably sad because, you know, I was black and I wasn't going to go to Miami, Florida, and things like that. But uh, you have to understand that uh, I had uh, I had been at that particular time an African-American for a long time, for over 20 years. So I had come up against uh, quite a bit of, of some of that type of racism, you know, in, in the movies and things like mm-hmm. that, as a matter of fact. So, uh, so that didn't really bother me so much as, as they might have expected. But I suspected at that time that Harvey Henderson was the person that did that. It's unbelievable to hear a story like this in this day and age. To think that was kind of commonplace back then. There was another story too about a, a hangman's noose. Yes, that's right. They put a hangman's noose right over my desk here in the Chicago office. Now, we're not talking about Miami or Mississippi. It's right in your home in the Chicago office of the Secret Service. I went to work one morning, and there's a hangman noose right over my desk. And, and uh, my goodness, I told when Mr. Martineau, who was special agent in charge, right. yes. came in, I made sure that it, it would stay there. I showed it to some of the other agents who were working there. And asked them if they knew who had uh, who had uh, placed that hangman noose there. Now you you know the irony of this whole thing is that uh, we're in the year 2008 now. That's right. And at the Secret Service School and and just outside Washington D.C., the uh, agents, the African American agents there, have a suit in federal district court for this same type of activity. They were finding hangman nooses hanging around their lodging quarters, and they, they're kidding. taking it to court. This is the same oh thing that's going on today. I had no idea. This is news to me. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely the same thing. They have a suit in, in federal district court claiming discrimination right now today. Oh, my God. There are 57 agents, African-American agents, who have sued the uh, United States Secret Service on the basis of discrimination. Now, that poses a real problem, you see. Because now we have uh, the Honorable Barack Obama. Yes, sir. See, this poses a real problem. So that means that the Secret Service has to have, have to uh, bring about another way in order to uh, find out <clears throat> the inner attitudes of the individuals who are surrounding President uh, Obama once that he takes office. And this, uh, this is a very critical issue. And uh, uh, what I would propose, what I would propose, there is a, a method called uh, pupillometry, which deals with the pupils of your eye. It's a, it deals with the sympathetic nervous system. Hmm. And it says this, is that when you look at a thing that you like, the pupils of your eyes enlarge. 
And when you look at something that you really dislike, whether it's subconscious or uh, whether it's in the conscious mind or subconscious mind, the pupils of your eyes automatically narrow. They get smaller and smaller. Now, this would be the test that I would give each and every Secret Service mm -hmm. agent who is going to contact, uh, come in contact with uh, uh, President Obama. And uh, I intend to recommend that to the chief of the Secret Service, if, if he will receive my letter, uh, that these agents be given that. Because you can't trick this. You can trick a, a, a polygraph test. All you have to do on a polygraph test to beat the polygraph test is when he asks you a question that's true, you bite your tongue and get a response on the needle on a polygraph test of pain, and that's the same uh, response that you would get if you told a lie. So whenever you should tell the truth, you bite your tongue, and you get a certain response. So when you actually lie, you get the same response. And so it looks like the truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, I do, sir. That's how you beat the polygraph test. You're but, educating uh, me here, in case I ever have to take one. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reason polygraph tests are unreliable. Some other uh, yes. things that people do is if they have the opportunity, they put a rock in their shoe. And when the question is asked, they, they put their big toe down on the rock and create a pain, painful situation, and that drives the Negro crazy. And so when they tell a lie, you can't tell the difference. Wow. So, but this uh, pupilometer test, yes, I would definitely bring in an ex expert on that and, and make those agents take it because, surprisingly so, it doesn't stand to, uh, to conclusion that simply because an agent is an African-American mm -hmm. that he lacks Barack Obama. See, see, see the, the, the two doesn't does naturally flow from one another. That's a very so, good point, actually. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's a good point. And, and so that he, we have to know, or the Secret Service and the American people should be assured that the agents who are surrounding Barack Obama are going to do their job in case of an emergency. And the only way that they can assure that is by giving them a test that cannot be defeated by trickery, conceit, or any other method. And so that means that pupilometry would uh, bring this out if there were any who, who, who had any type of dislike whatsoever for uh, the Honorable Barack Obama. Folks, I am being blown away, as I'm sure you are too at home. We are speaking with none other than a true American hero, Abraham Bolden. Abraham Bolden, of course, was the first African-American Secret Service agent, handpicked by John F. Kennedy himself to be on his Secret Service team. After the assassination, Mr. Bolden was cognizant enough to blow the whistle on inept Secret Service behavior and was subsequently framed for a crime he did not commit and incarcerated to silence him. Sir, going back to that, can we just talk a little bit about what you feel the Secret Service did not do? The whole attitude of the man that you had mentioned before in service to the president that was yes, not a yes. they they were they they were very confused in uh, Dallas, Texas. Now, in any situation, uh, act such as that that horrible murder that happened in Dallas, you have two acts that cause uh, uh, an event to happen. There, there's an act of commission which means the guy that actually does the uh, evil deed. Then you have an act of omission 
on the part of the people who are supposed to intervene to make sure that this deed doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. The Secret Service, in my estimation, and as I bring out in my book, were clearly uh, uh, guilty of acts of omission. And the act of omission, number one, was not being... uh, physically and mentally able to respond when those shots were fired in Dealey Plaza. There should have been an response by those agents who were riding on the back running board of the president's limousine, and uh, and that did not happen. As a matter of fact, a good friend of mine, John Reedy, who was standing on the right front uh, running board, was very dejected because when he uh, attempted to to Mm -hmm. move, he That's was right. called back by um, by That's one right. of the agents who was sitting inside the limousine. He was called back. Now, uh, so they were very disorganized, and they were not in any physical and mental shape to carry out their responsibilities. Now, whenever agents uh, lose sight of the constitutional uh, value of the presidency of the United States, and then they start protecting the man instead of the constitutional office, you run into a problem. Because then all of these attitudes, like I heard uh, some of the agents refer to President Kennedy prior to his assassination as a nigger lover. Mm. And I, I thought this was awful. And now all of these things that uh, I'm speaking and telling the public today, uh, I have documented uh, in in my book, in, in the appendix of my book, especially the court things that we'll be talking about a little bit later. Now, uh, I'm just going to mention the name of your book and where people right. can get it. Abraham Bolden's book is The Echo from Daily Plaza, and it's the true story of his life story. You can get it at Chapters just here in the King's Way, or you can order it right from his website, which is www.echofromdailyplaza.net. And, of course, JFK Lancer would be happy to put you in touch with that, which is www.jfklancer.com. JFK Lancer also has an annual JFK assassination conference that they put on every November from the 21st to 23rd, where Mr. Bolden will be appearing, giving a lecture at the conference. If you can go, I urge you. I would love to go, and I'm planning on going next year. We're talking about ineptness in Daily Plaza. That yes, yes, that, that's right. And so the, the agents there clearly uh, did, didn't perform as, as they should have. And uh, to a man, the agents who, who were there uh, privately ad- admitted that there should have been a different outcome so far as their performance was concerned, even though some suspect that they may not have been able to save the president's life. Mm-hmm. They, they do feel that uh, the Secret Service was... Uh, uh, somewhat derelict in their duties when those shots were fired. They had now, been drinking the night before. Oh, so. yes, they were no. up until just about all night, uh, which when we were in Hyannisport, that was uh, just about par for the course. We had mm. agents who who would uh, leave the detail, and they, they would go out drinking, and they would come back, uh, you know, some of them just in time to go to work. And that that's what was going on. So now, uh, when I uh, uh, did my exit interview, because I asked mm-hmm. off the detail, it, w- it was just the uh, tension was just so oppressive. I, I don't know how much I, longer I could have uh, stayed on that detail, because it was just getting very oppressive. Anyway, I went in and talked to the chief of the Secret Service in Washington, D.C., 
And I told him all of those things that I, I'm uh, telling uh, the public here today. And he promised me that he was going to look into it. But uh, I didn't see any evidence or any changes in the Secret Service agent's attitude. I didn't see any changes in the personnel around the president. I didn't see any changes when those same agents came to Chicago in 1963. The first thing that they did was uh, went down to the Playboy Club, and they were down the Playboy oh. Club watching the girls' tabletop dance and all that on Rush Street until about 4 o'clock in the morning. And they came to the meeting that we had on about November the 1st, and when the Kennedy was supposed to come to Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, they came to the meeting bleary-eyed and yeah. smelling of alcohol. And I said, this thing is still going on. So when the in Inspector Kelly came to Chicago, I reminded Spec Inspector Kelly that I had lodged a complaint with the chief of the Secret Service concerning this conduct, uh, and I, I see evidences of it still going on. Well, he sort of blew me off. He, you, you know, he says we haven't lost a president for many, many years, and you might uh, not be uh, judging this thing right. And uh, shortly thereafter, the president was assassinated. After the president was assassinated, I, I was very agitated concerning the uh, the uh, activity of the Secret Service at that time, and I began to watch uh, the Secret Service here in Chicago. I watched their, what they were doing. We had an investigation here of a Cuban uh, organization uh, based here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And in early October and in late October, we had an informant that was naked working right with this Cuban organization. The informant reported to us, this was a prior to the assassination, that President Kennedy was about to be taken care of and that they had now the money to take care of President Kennedy and that uh, once that he was taken care of, they thought that they would get a better deal from President Johnson in going into mm -hmm. Cuba mm -hmm. and overthrowing Castro. All right, now this uh, these statements were made in uh, in uh, late October and, and in early November, once that the president was assassinated. The reports of the conversations on this uh, case, which was the, uh, I don't know if I should say it, but anyway, it was the Echevera case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, those reports were dated until after the assassination. Oh, my. You see, now, here's, here's the thing. We have researchers, and they're, they're looking for the big, big, big lie, you know, in, in, in the conspiracy. But in order to throw the researchers off, mm -hmm. you see, it only takes a little thing. You take an investigation that happened before the president was assassinated and redictate that report to, to uh, reflect that it happened after that the president was assassinated, then you uh, exclude all of these suspects uh, 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 from investigation by the official body. You see what I'm yes, saying? Yes, sir. Yes, you exclude Holy them, and so God. you're actually covering up valuable information. Now, that case was uh, the agent who was investigating that case. His office was right next to mine. And his uh, a big complaint on that, because I talked to him concerning that case as he was investigating it. He told me that he thought that the uh, CIA 
and the FBI were actually interfering with this case. And that those men who were plotting and who had said that Kennedy was about to be taken care of were actually working for the CIA or the FBI. And this is what the agent uh, Joe Noonan thought. And I believe that uh, once he got before the Warren Commission and testified, I believe he brought that out before the Warren Commission. Wow, that's explosive. Completely explosive. So these were anti-Castro activists. Yes. Yes, and 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 uh, Chicago was flooded with them uh, mm-hmm. around November, prior to the uh, president uh, was assassinated. Uh, Chicago was was uh, just just uh, stinking with those uh, anarchistrites. Uh, we had a report uh, where a lady went into a room and she That's saw right. mm-hmm. uh, rifles uh, lying on the bed. And uh, with uh, with the president's uh, uh, route that he was to take from uh, O'Hare Airport into Chicago, with that marked out, it was in in, in the newspaper. I believe it was Sun Times newspaper. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, whether or not she had to throw some covers back or anything to discover the rifle, but anyway, she called the Secret Service. She called the FBI first. And from that, they uh, they eventually arrested a man, Arthur Valley, mm-hmm. who said uh, who said that he was a patsy. He said that uh, that he was a patsy and that he worked for the CIA and uh, he made certain certain claims uh, oh, that God. that he was actually working for the government. But anyway, that that's how that turned out. Now, Boy, none that... of these investigations uh, were yes, brought to the attention of the Warren Commission. Ballet sounds like Oswald. Oswald said he was a patsy also. Yes, that's right. And and that's what Ballet said. Holy cow. This is explosive, sir. Yes. Incredible. Yes, and that's in, that's in my book. That's in my book. The Echo from Daily Plaza, which can be reached at jfklancer.com or echofromdailyplaza.net. Or better still, folks, if you want to get it right away, if you don't want to go to the Internet for any reason, you can get it right from chapters here on the Kingsway. Or if you're listening from around the world, just go to any bookstore and you will be able to get it. The author, of course, is none other than Abraham Bolden. Mr. Bolden was the first African-American Secret Service agent handpicked by JFK himself, and he's revealing some explosive it's the only thing I can call it explosive information this afternoon. Sir, you've seen this Zapruder film. How do you feel when you see that? Because you knew the man. You knew JFK. Yes, it's uh, it's even difficult for me to, to, to talk about because uh, the uh, president of the United States, as, as I said, uh, uh, when we met each other, that was sort of, uh, to me, in my estimation, a camaraderie there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I saw in his eyes a sincerity uh, for the uh, minority people. I saw that he he wanted to uh, make this a country of unity. He he had ideals. He he just exuded that, and uh, with his sincere smile and how he treated people. You know, the president was the president of the United States, and uh, around the White House, especially when he would walk up to me and introduce me to someone that he was with. You you know, I, I'm thinking mm-hmm. the president doesn't have to do that. I'm I'm just one vote. That that's all he's going to get. You see, you see, so it's not a political thing with him. I think that the president had a deep empathy for people who had suffered because the president had suffered uh, a lot himself. Because even though he had oodles of money, 
you know, he still had the bad back. He That's had right. so many tragedies in his family. And and he just had so many things that was uh, depressing on on his mind. And so now I think that that gave him a certain empathy uh, for people. And he wanted to bring about, just like Obama does, a unified mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obama is so much like President Kennedy. It's, it's frightening. They have the same ideals, uh, the the same outlook for the United I, States of idealism America. Idealism, yes, and a they, they do. Yes, they do. He's mm-hmm. very, very idealistic, and the fact of the matter is, if he's allowed to uh, carry out his plan, uh, then I think that he's going to deliver America from from the throes of bankruptcy. I really do. I think that he's going to be a fabulous president. Just as President Kennedy was. Mm-hmm. I understand you also met Bobby Kennedy. Oh yes, I met Bobby. Bobby uh, at <laughs> Hannah's point. I hear it in your voice, sir. <laughs> but Bobby really, really impressed me. He wanted me to uh, uh, join the FBI. Bobby really impressed <laughs> me. You know, and as mm-hmm. I was talking to the, new, uh, the two brothers, as I bring out in my book, I was just comparing the two uh, by. Hmm. My impression that hmm. I had uh, uh, of the both, uh, looking at their eyes, Kennedy had eyes uh, like a cow, you know, the uh, soft eyes and hmm. the very, uh, uh, how, how should I put it, uh, uh, receptive type of eyes. Uh, Bobby had eyes like a fox, mm-hmm. like he could tear you all to pieces, man. <laughs> when, he, when he looked, they, they complimented one another. Bobby Kennedy, the way that he talked to me and the, the, the sharpness of his questions and uh, the uh, lack of a smile at times. You, you could see that this, this man here was, was the perfect man at that particular time to be the term general of the United States. You needed a tough man like that, somebody who had ideals and could carry out the, the dictates and the mm-hmm. uh, the orders of the president of the United States. You needed a man like that, and 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 God gave us both of those men mm-hmm. during that particular time of need. Sir, let's talk about the day of the assassination, where you were, your feelings, but after that, what happened after that also? Well, I became a constant complainer because I, my, my, uh, my whole intestines were like in a knot on the inside. Uh, and I, I wanted to, I, I really, just to be frank with that, I felt, that I had let the president down also. I felt that he saw something in me and that he put me on that detail and that maybe I should have found some kind of way to circumvent my supervisors and get word directly to the president of the United States himself. But then again, you you see, I was torn between uh, whether to go through the chain of command or whether to go to the Warren Commission, who was investigating this thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was just my my whole stomach was just tied up in knots. Well, I decided that since they had an official body investigating this thing, that I would go and and try to contact and give my testimony before the Warren Commission. Now there there are some people who say that that that. Uh, that the Warren Commission had already had some of the uh, information that I intended to give, that they already knew about the agents drinking in Dallas, Texas, and this, but but they did not. 
at that particular time, the Warren Commission only knew that the agents had gone to a tea house. The testimony had said that they went to a tea house that and tea they drank house. tea until 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I came out and wanted to give a testimony about the habitual drinking of the agents all night, I knew that they had to be drinking liquor because that was their custom. That's how they operated. And so that's the type of information I wanted to get before the Warren Commission and let the Warren Commission know that the Secret Service chief had been forewarned that such a thing could happen Mm -hmm. if the disposition of the United States Secret Service and their hatred towards the President of the United States was not not changed. Mm -hmm. That was the important thing I wanted to get before the Warren Commission and the fact that they were backdating reports and that they were putting things out of line, not the way that they happened in the investigative uh, 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 area, but that they were changing dates and doing things to exclude people from having any conspiracy uh, to assassinate the president of the United States. And so when I went to Washington, D.C., with the intention of attending uh, Secret Service School uh, on uh, May the 17th, I called... um, uh, J. Lee Rankin, well, I call the White mm-hmm. House switchboard. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get the number uh, of J. Lee Rankin so I could talk to J. Lee Rankin. But I had the suspicion that uh, the agent who was with me at that particular time, he was watching me. I, I, I just had that suspicion because when I went into the telephone booth, uh, he went into the booth next to mine. Well, back in those days, probably some of the young children, they, they don't understand how that used to work. But when you put your uh, dime in there, uh, you heard a ding, ding. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I went into the telephone booth and I put my dime in, I heard the ding, ding, but I never heard the ding, ding of his telephone. So I say he's not making a telephone call. So when the White House switchboard answered, I started to talk and then I hung up because I didn't want him to know exactly what was going on. This was Agent Gary McCloud. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. the next day, uh, after I had made this uh, aborted telephone call, I was sitting in class in Secret Service School, and uh, Mr. Anderson, Howard Anderson, who was the uh, the uh, 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 human services, you might say, who was the director uh, of the uh, human he, services. For human resources? Yeah. Okay, sir. Yes, he he was uh, the director of the the employment of the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. So he came to school and uh, and he told me a lie. He says uh, we need you back in in Chicago. Uh, we we're investigating a counterfeiting ring in uh, in uh, Villa Park, Illinois, and we need you for undercover assignment. Well, that wasn't very unusual because I had been all over the country on undercover assignments during my stint with the United States Secret Service. So we got on a t- on a plane and we flew into O'Hare uh, Airport. It was about ninety six days, ninety six degrees that day. I never will forget it. <laughs> and uh, when the plane landed, we were met by uh, Agent Jordan here in Chicago. And uh, they put me in a car, and I asked Jordan, what about this investigation in Villa Park? And he continued the pretext and the lie, and they brought me on in into the courthouse in, in Chicago. Well, he put me in this room with Inspector McCann, and uh, I sat in there an hour. The, the room was hot. My suit mm. was wringing wet. It was so hot. 
And so finally, after about an hour and a half, Mr. Martin, who was the special agent in charge, mm -hmm. walked into the room and he says, we're charging you with soliciting a bribe. I said, what? I, I thought that this must be part of the investigation or something. I, I, I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. uh, because I was running the stellar agents, you know, and I said, charge me with soliciting a bribe. I said, hey, are you serious? I said, that's, that's ridiculous. But uh, to make a long story short, he tells me that uh, they have a witness, Frank Jones, who says that I solicited a bribe. Now, get the details on Frank Jones. Mm -hmm. Frank Jones was a man that I had arrested twice myself for counterfeiting cases, mm -hmm. and he had a counterfeiting case pending on him at that time. And if he had been convicted of that counterfeiting case that I had lodged against him, he would have served the rest of his life in the penitentiary. It would have been his third felony conviction. Now, this is the man they said was accusing me of using him to solicit a bribe. Unbelievable. You see? Now Unbelievable. The, now, the other person on the other end of this was a man named Joseph Spagnoli. Mm -hmm, Spagnoli he was yeah. a, a small-time hood here in Chicago, and the fact of the matter is, I was a part of the group of agents that arrest, had arrest, arrested him a week before. And he was also on trial for counterfeiting of a government money, uh, bonds, mm -hmm, e-bonds. Mm -hmm. Now, right. these are the witnesses against me. To make a long story short, they uh, took me to trial here in Chicago. I had two trials, as a matter of fact. Now, in Chicago, before Judge J. Sam Perry, Mr. after Perry, the yeah. statements had been uh, uh, given and all the testimony of the trial had been uh had been recorded. The judge called the jury in as they were deliberating, the 12 members of the jury. Mm -hmm. And uh, he tells these deliberating jurors, this is he unbelievable. Says, in my opinion, the evidence shows that this uh, defendant is guilty mm. uh, uh, as charged on all three counts in the indictment. Mm. And I, I didn't know that a judge had that power. I thought that was a, a power under the Constitution of the United States that was designated to a jury. As I understand it, the mm -hmm. first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, designates uh, that power to a jury. But the judge took that uh, upon himself, told the jury he thought I was guilty, then sent them back into the jury room and said, now with this new information, go in and revoke. That's what he said. Well, that jury didn't find me guilty. One they person did not find me guilty. Because now, of one person. Could you tell that, who that person was, That's sir? right. That was Miss Anna B. Hightower. Miss Anna B. Hightower was incensed at not only the conduct of the judge, but at the evidence as it stood against me. She mm -hmm. went on television and was interviewed and said they have nothing on that, that young man. Uh, say anybody who sits there and listens can tell that's a made-up case. No, so that doesn't, doesn't even make sense. He says the witnesses are being caught in lies, and the, the government and the United States attorneys, they're covering up for these witnesses. She said that right on television. I should and, tell people, too, that you're only 29 years old at this point. You've got two little ones at home and a wife, and, and you're trying and, to support and them. And just bought a house uh, about a year ago. And so this is a complete financial drain also, never mind the emotional drain. Yes, it was. Yes, it, it, it hit pretty hard, you know, And but by the grace of God, I, I would have crumbled. 
But anyway, uh, on the second trial, the jury was deliberating again. Mm-hmm. And the judge, uh, on August uh, 12th, uh, the judge came out. He says that, uh, well, it's getting late. He says, I'm going to go home and get some rest. So I'm going to uh, uh, tell the jury that if they come to uh, a, a verdict, to seal the verdict. And uh, it was getting getting late. I, it was about 5.30 in, in the evening. So the judge locked me and my attorney, my wife and family, and all of the spectators out of the court building, not just out of the courtroom. He locked us out of the building. Now, inside that whole building was representatives of the FBI, mm-hmm. representatives of the CIA, Secret Service agents, the judge, and the jury. Everybody who was left in that building was a representative of the government. Unbelievable. Yes, yes. Oh. He locked us out of the courtroom. And then on my way home, it comes over the radio that the jury had just reached a verdict, verdict in the Bolden case. Well, the judge said that he was going home. And he was still there. He was still there. Mm-hmm. He said the judge released the jury. Mm. Well, see, by by rights, the judge is not supposed to address a jury outside of the presence of the counsel. Mm-hmm. See, my counsel has to be there whenever the judge addresses the jury, even if it's for the purpose of releasing the jury. Mm-hmm. But this was overlooked, and as a matter of fact. But what happened was this. The, the stars must have been with me, and the uh, supreme essence was, was my guide. Spagnoli, when he went on trial himself in January, he admitted that he committed perjury in my trial. And this and, was the key witness um, yes, testifying he was against you. Key witnesses against me. Mm-hmm. Not only did he admit that he committed some perjury in my trial, he called up uh, one of my attorneys and told my attorney that he stole the document that I allegedly was supposed to be been a, a soliciting a bribe with said that he stole that document from the Secret Service mm-hmm. office, and that once the Secret Service found out he had the document, they helped uh, him set me up. Unbelievable, eh? Oh. He said that, that oh. all he wanted to do was get a chance to testify, and he would name names, where I was set up, and how this whole thing was carried out. And so we naturally, we file appeals after appeals and everything, but nobody would call Spagnoli before the bar in order that we could clear this matter up. Consequently, I went to, we went all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, certiorari was denied. I was sentenced to six years in a United States penitentiary. And I, I went away on June 26, uh, 1966, and I spent three years and three months confined in the United States Penitentiary. Sir, can you tell us just for a second, what, maybe you could just speak about what Justice William O. Douglas wrote on your behalf? Yes, Justice William O. Douglas thought that the Supreme Court should hear the case, he says, because there were, there were uh, definitely serious constitutional issues that the Supreme Court should take a look at. Uh, that was when they denied certiorari. Of course, it takes mm-hmm. uh, at that particular time we would have taken uh, five justices to to hear the case of the nine men. You have to have at least sometime you can get by with four if one abstains, but uh, normally it would take five of them to say we'll hear the case. <clears throat> now, 
saying that the Supreme Court did not hear the case does not necessarily mean that they agree with everything that had happened uh, mm-hmm. with me. It simply means that it, for that term that they decided not to listen to the case. But anyway, it was uh, to my disadvantage. Sir, would you like to take a break? Do you want to get a glass of water or something? Yes, we can take a little break Okay, because you've been going for a steady hour. I guess I've been neglecting you, my friend. I'm sorry, but it was so intense there for a while. I just wanted to keep going. I Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to get my side out to the public, and I hope that they will purchase my book. Absolutely. All the stories you are hearing this afternoon are from Abraham Bolden, and they are all true. This is an unbelievable story of a true American hero. He was incarcerated for a crime he did not commit. He was obviously set up by the Secret Service to silence him because he was speaking out about the JFK assassination. You can get Mr. Bolden's book, The Echo from Daily Plaza, from the JFK Lancer website, which is www.jfklancer.com, or from Mr. Bolden's website, which is echofromdailyplaza.net. Chapters also sells the book. I've read the book three times. It is astounding. Each time I read it, I learn more about Mr. Bolden, his relationship with JFK. Both are very similar. Both men are very similar. They have deep, deep beliefs in integrity and honor and a fortitude, an inner fortitude that for me is an inspiration and a role model. This man, Mr. Bolden, is a role model for the younger people of today. If you want to know about integrity and honor and how to stand against the wind, this is the man whose book you must buy. We are going to take a break right now. We'll come back in about four minutes. This is called Task Force Kabul, and it is for our fighting forces over in Afghanistan right now.
And we are back, and we are honored this afternoon here at CKLU 96.7 FM to have a true American hero online, all the way from Chicago. Abraham Bolden is with us, and Abraham Bolden was the first African American Secret Service agent handpicked by JFK himself. He has personal experience with JFK. He was right there on his Secret Service team. After the assassination, Mr. Bolden blew the whistle, if you will, on Secret Service ineptness cover up about certain investigations that had been going on prior to the assassination that were covered up to cover butt, I guess, for lack of a better term. Let's go back into it right now. Mr. Bolden, welcome back. Yes, thank you very much. Mr. Bolden has a great book out called The Echo from Daily Plaza. I've read it three times, as I stated before. All these stories you've been hearing all afternoon are right in his book. I have it right in front of me. You can pick it up at Chapters, or you can get it right online at JFK Lancer. And you've heard me mention JFK Lancer several times because they have been integral, and I thank them wholeheartedly, Deborah Conway, for helping me get these guests together for the 45th anniversary of the JFK assassination. And now, without further ado, back to Mr. Bolden. Sir, I was wondering if you could continue with your story, how you were framed and the travesty of justice you were subject to. Yes, well, the as I say, I went to the United States Penitentiary. Uh, first, they started me out at uh, at a penitentiary in uh, Terre Haute, Indiana. I went there, and then from there, I was uh, transferred to uh, Fort Leavenworth, which is uh, quite an institution. And the third penitentiary that I went to was uh, Springfield Medical Center for Federal Prisoners. Now, it was there that the anticipated actions uh, of my government uh, came to uh, manifestation. I knew that they were trying to discredit me, and uh, for lack of uh, outright assassinating me, I felt that they would try to uh, uh, discredit me to Mm -hmm. such an extent to where anything that I wrote or anything, words that I speak, would not be accepted by the American people. And in order to do this, they had to come up with a method that would silence me or make me disregarded by any uh, intelligent person. Mm -hmm. So now when they transferred me to Springfield Medical Center for Federal Prisoners, they put me in a camp there. But I had anticipated that the government was going to try uh, something on me that they had tried on other people who had given testimony concerning uh, uh, government inactivity. Now, I knew that somewhere along the line that they were going to try to declare me insane. I just felt it. And so on uh, the uh, uh, 6th of uh, July in 1967, I was in the camp at Springfield, uh, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Three o'clock in the morning, two guards came and got me. I was mm. asleep. It was three o'clock. I Looked at the big clock uh, up at the top of the, this. is kind of rough for me sometimes, but yes, sir. Anyway, uh, they came and got me and uh, didn't even give me time to uh, put my clothes on like I should or anything like that. And uh, they marched me down the uh, long hallway from the camp underground. And they took me to the section uh, in the hospital that they called uh, 2-1 East. 
uh, 2-1-E's is the noted psychiatric ward. All of the inmates there and throughout the penal system call that the tomb. Once you go in there, you never come out the same. That's what they would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a psychiatric war. And as I was uh, approaching the big steel door in the dead of night, I was just had my hopes that God would be with me because I knew that I was up against an awesome power and that this power was trying to discredit and eradicate me as a man, as a father, as a brother, as a son. And uh, they took me behind there and locked me up with those uh, psychopaths, people who had murdered other federal prisoners, people who had murdered postal workers, and one particular person who I saw commit a murder himself. They locked me up in the same division with him. Mm. Of course, I was behind a thick steel door, and uh, I was not allowed outside the room. And they, they fed me through a tray in an opening in a doorway. And no matter how I pleaded, they would not uh, let me out of that room. Now, I suffer from uh, mild claustrophobia. It was very, very very difficult for me and uh, they had taken away my clothing and later within a couple of days they came with a little drink and uh, they had in there in this uh, little cup psychotropic drugs that would uh, alter my mental state. (laughs) And they forced me to take them. There were uh, four guards at the door. I refused to take them on the basis that I had not been classified as a psychotic or anything like that, and I was a member of the camp. I belonged in the camp. And they told me that uh, psychiatrists had ordered it, and I said, why? You know, and but they say, well, I had to take that up with him. And I just, I, I knew what they were doing. So I had to develop a plan in order not to let them get these psychotropic drugs in me because I knew that once that they did that, I would be cooked as an individual mm-hmm. because they send you down the path step by step. They start out with something mild and then something a little bit heavier because I had seen men who had disappeared from the camp. And the next time that I would see these men, they were in such a shape that they could barely breathe. And these these were people that they had taken from the camp and put in the two onies and destroyed them mentally, which is the only thing that a man has in order to divide him from the animals and beasts of the field. And so I prayed. I would tell everybody, I prayed to the infinite cosmic creative consciousness, the God of love, harmony, and beauty. I prayed. that That's all that I could do. Because the United States government is a powerful government. 
So all that I could do, uh, Brother Brent, was call on a power that was greater than them. And that power is the Lord God Almighty. Mm -hmm. And just to be fair, I give him all the credit. When I looked at those hills, he answered my prayer. And he made it possible for me to be delivered from that tomb. Uh, what he did, uh, he gave me a vision one night. I was laying on my bed. And uh, I was very low. I had uh, 10 days of beer. I was frightened. And uh, I saw this light that uh, came in the corner of my room. And it was a bright light. It got bright like the sun. And I I really thought that I might be uh, losing my mind at that particular time. And so from this light, an image appeared, and it told me to fear not. And that the power of Almighty God was with me. And so the next morning, Brother uh, uh, Brent, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but to verify that something had happened uh, as soon as that image had died away, two guards who were on duty came running up to my cell, and they shone their flashlights all around my cell room, and they looked in the corner, and they, they shined the light in my face and everything. So they must have heard something. Mm-hmm. You see, they mm-hmm. heard something. Mm-hmm. So that told me right then that I had not lost contact with reality because the light that I saw must have shone outside the room. The next morning, Brother Holland, mm-hmm. a fire erupted in a cell four doors down from mine. Oh, my. And the guards started running back and forth, and they said, get the fire department. And they said at the room, and they called it out, mm-hmm. room number 13 is on fire. The other guard called out to him and said, but there's nobody in that room. That room is vacant. They said, well, the room is burning. Mm. There was a, The whole room was a lit of fire. And so when the guard ran back by my cell, I beat on the window, and he said to the other guard, get Bolden out of there. I don't think I could have lasted another day. But by the grace of God, you see, mm-hmm. he knocked down that steel door. Mm-hmm. See, it was his grace. It was his hand. And I remember uh, a verse when I was reading as a as a young boy when I was only 12 years old. Yes, sir. And I had found uh, a copy uh, of the Holy Book, the Bible. And it says in there, in Zechariah, when he looking at the uh, seven golden candlesticks, God tells the Rubaball, he says, not by power or by might, but by my spirit. And you see, I live by that. So all that I had to fight with, was God, and that's who I live with today, that's who I live for today, and that's who I hope that I can serve for the balance of my life. The power of the Lord. Thank you. Amen. What an incredible story, sir. What an incredible man you are. 
to go through those trials and tribulations to the depths of hell. And yes, I did, but I, I look at it like this, uh, Brother Brent. Now, you know, uh, pearls uh, come from an oyster yes, where a little grain of sand gets up under that end of that coat of the oyster. And in trying to move this irritation, this, this irritation that is irritating, he exudes a chemical from his body, and he continues to surround this little grain of sand, which is problematic to him with this chemical, and it turns out to be a beautiful white pearl. Mm. And so that's the way I look at the echo from David Plass. I hope that it is that beautiful white pearl that will let the people of America know how great it is to live in America, how great it is to live under democracy, because you never know what you're losing until you lose it. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And if we refuse to stand up for truth and justice here in America, we, we don't deserve it. I have to leave a legacy for my people and for my children to let them know that the only thing that will be hindering them from being a free people is fear and falsehood. And once that we overcome the fear and falsehood of those who would do America wrong and injustice and void the Constitution of the East United States of America, unless we stand up for this truth and justice, then we will fall into a garden of tyranny that no man can turn around. Beautiful. I don't know what to say. That's astounding, sir. You are not only one of the bravest men I've ever spoke with, but indeed a man of true integrity, honor, and it is just a privilege to speak with you today, sir. It's been a privilege to be on your show. I just want to tell folks we have been speaking with Abraham Bolden, the first African-American. Oh, it goes beyond that. I hate saying that. A true man of dignity, of integrity, of honor. He has served his country. He has stood fast in the face of tyranny. He did not bend one iota. He was down in the pit by himself, found the Lord, and came back out from it. If you are out there and you are looking for a role model for your kids, this is the man. This is the book you should get. The Echo from Daily Plaza. Never mind turning the TV on and watching the hockey game and looking at some hockey star or some other sports star. That's okay in its own right. But if you want a true hero, this is the man. The Echo from Daily Plaza, available from echofromdailyplaza.net. You can get it right here at Chapters like I have. I've read it three times. Just an unbelievable, phenomenal story. Just to tell you, to wrap up, he was released from jail. He is still trying to clear his name. Mr. Bolden, would you like to wrap up with us and just tell us uh, an epilogue where you are right now? Yes, I, I would just like to uh, tell the people that uh, I have no malice towards uh, anything that happened to me. Life itself is a learning process. And we learn, we, pro we progress by those things which we have to resist. Uh, moving forward, we must have resistance in, in this life. It is up to us to overcome it, to overcome it with faith, with truth, and with justice and love for our fellow man. This is what all of the prophets came teaching, that we should yes, love sir. one another. 
And that's what we have to work on. And I say to everybody, uh, may God bless Canada and may God bless America. And may God bless you always, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on our show today. Abraham Bolden, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Good day, sir. Wow. If you've been listening, of course, that was Abraham Bolden. A true American hero, a true hero for everybody, not just America. His book, The Echo from Daily Plaza, can be found at Chapters. You can also get it directly from www.jfklancer.com and from Mr. Bolden's website, which is www.echofromdailyplaza.net. And if you have enjoyed the show today, please, there is a email address for Mr. Bolden on his site, Please feel free to email him and tell him of your feelings. And wow, what a show. What an incredible, incredible man. We are so lucky to have had him on the show today. A true hero. Whew. Abraham Bolden, what can I say? My goodness. My goodness. Folks, we are so blessed to have men like him in this world. Whoa. Just unbelievable. Beautiful, beautiful man, beautiful story. God bless you, Abraham. God bless to everybody. That's Night Fright for today. And um, we'll see you tonight, 10 o'clock. to Night Fright and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 